Are you ready for good talk? A can of pet food, where every ingredient matters. Some companies like to brag about their first ingredient, but the Acana Pet Food team is proud of their entire bag. That's because every recipe has been thoughtfully sourced and carefully crafted with the highest quality ingredients, starting with quality animal ingredients, balanced with whole fruits and vegetables. Acana Pet Foods are rich in the protein and nutrients your dog or cat needs to feel and look their best. Available in grain-free, healthy grains and singles for sensitive dogs. Acana, go beyond the first ingredient. Roll Up to Win is back at Tim Hortons with more prizes than ever. This time you might roll a Tim card, a Samsung Galaxy smartwatch, a Hilton getaway, or even the all-new 2022 Volkswagen Taos. You're allowed to push your luck a little because every roll wins. Just scan the Tim's app when making a purchase on select products and win every time. Rules apply. Open to registered Tim's reward members in Canada only. No purchase necessary. Full contest details on the Tim Hortons app. Copyright Tim Hortons 2021. Oh yeah, good talk Fridays. Chantel's in Montreal. Bruce is in Ottawa. Um, here's how I want to get started this week. Uh, with a reminder of how Margaret Thatcher left her job as leader of the British Conservative Party. She didn't just suddenly decide, oh, you know, my time's up. I'm going to resign. She wasn't the loser at a convention, a leadership convention. No, she was booted out by her own caucus while she was leader. They had decided they'd had enough of Margaret Thatcher. And they had the power to do that. Just her caucus, just her fellow MPs. Now, that's not been the case in Canada. And there's always been this debate about does the leader of any particular party have just too much power, especially when they take office in, in terms of government of Canada, that the PMO, the Prime Minister's office, has all the clout, makes all the decisions, makes various MPs toe the line, not necessarily the party line, but the Prime Minister's line. Well, this week may well have been a significant moment in the history of that practice. Because the Conservative Party, post-election, at a time when many people were talking about can Aaron O'Toole survive, decided in their caucus meeting this week that they're going to give the caucus the power to determine basically the future of the leader. So the question here this morning on Good Talk is how significant a moment was that in the history of Canadian politics? because some could see this as a start, that it could become contagious, that other parties may move in the same direction. And if they did, and if in the case of the Conservatives they have, is that a good thing for parliamentary democracy? What do we think of that? Bruce, why don't you start us this week? Well, I'm glad you, you started with an easy one, Peter, because I... <laughs> Like a lot of people, probably, I don't know for sure, but a lot of people probably did this. I stayed up really late last night. I was reading this new book. Uh, that, <laughs> uh, that's why he got to go first. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I'm not going to doubt the book that you wrote about yourself again this morning. You're in uh, it. You're both now. in it, as a matter of fact. I know, but it's just a picture of me in bad clothing and not really a story about me. So I'm not, I'm okay with that. I'm just going to move on and, and shrug that off. And I love that question because I, I do think that there has always been this kind of tension between do we give leaders and parties too much power? Should we relieve them of some of that power? Will it be a, you know a better functioning democracy if we do? And I I don't think the answer is. Uh, yes, I, I think the answer is we give them too much power, but I don't think that the solution that the conservatives have adopted right now is necessarily a solution that would make sense for other parties to adopt or that will accomplish what um, they might hope that it that it uh, accomplishes. And, and here's why. Um, I think the conservative party right now is at least three parties underneath the hood. I think it's a, a kind of a Western uh, energy oriented um uh, really unhappy with anybody by the name of Trudeau party. Um, 
and uh, and that kind of Western resentment of federal leadership, uh, liberal or conservative for that matter, has has been in place for a long time, and it's it's been a lot of the fuel of the modern conservative party and the reform party before that. I think the second uh, element of the conservative party is the is the religious right, and those people are not as interested in in the those Western resentment issues or the energy issues or carbon pricing. They really have a singular focus on on questions of uh, social conservatism, including abortion. Uh, and then there are people in the center and in eastern parts of Canada and other places as well who are fiscal conservatives, uh, small government conservatives, small business conservatives who really don't um, share those uh, senses of antagonism around the, the religious and the Western alienation issues. And they're just looking to help uh, put together a conservative coalition that can form government. So if you said, well, the caucus can decide who should be the leader effectively for those three different factions, that caucus does not have uh, what I would call proportional representation uh, of those three groups within the party. The risk is that the caucus will keep on uh, choosing leaders that underrepresent that kind of more centrist conservative, more fiscal and small business conservative idea. So the conservative party will keep on finding itself in a situation where the leaders that it chooses are, are not quite tuned uh, for the country as a whole and maybe don't have the strength because they haven't been elected by the membership at large to stand up to a caucus that has strong opinions and strong personalities and that sort of thing. So it's a very interesting thing to watch. I don't think other parties should adopt it. I don't think they will. And I'm not sure it's the way that the conservatives will solve this dilemma. Hmm. Okay. Uh, that's an interesting take. Chantal, what's yours? My understanding of what the, of the power that the conservative caucus uh, gave itself uh, is that they have the power to remove the leader and appoint an interim leader, but it remains up to the leadership to pick a permanent leader that uh, whoever is selected to take over, say, from Aaron O'Toole, would have to either uh, be someone who wants to run or someone who actually does not want to run and will take over caretaker duties while someone else is chosen. I've been looking back uh, while we were getting ready at, uh, you know, all the opposition leaders for the most part uh, who have been shown the door by their parties. And, you know, that song, 60 Ways to Leave Your Lover, there are 60 ways to get rid of a leader. And now there is a 61st way to get rid of a leader, uh, which involves a, a vote in caucus. Before I move to the other parties, I'll, I'll just say about Aaron O'Toole and the fact that uh, he is on the record as having voted for this power to be given to caucus, and it has been uh, described as, uh, you know, something now hanging over his head, but it's a two-edged sword. Leaders of the opposition, think uh, Stockwell Day, John Turner, uh, Joe Clark, have died from the death of a thousand cuts coming from their own caucuses. Anonymous voices, usually you've already seen them at work in the case of Aaron O'Toole, sources that uh, will say whatever they want under the protection of anonymity. This allows a leader to uh, do a put up or shut up uh, move. And in the case of Aaron O'Toole, at this juncture, at least, I suspect that if he put it to his caucus or his caucus supporters that he wants this vote to happen, he would win that vote. Uh, and silence is caucus critics by doing so. You need, for people who aren't aware of the mechanics, you need 20% of caucus to sign uh, a, a letter to say, we want to hold a leadership review vote. That process, if it is going to happen, will be known, but the vote will be a secret ballot. So if you're a leader that feels that there are a couple of um, Mavericks who are having a really good day with uh, the media by being anonymous, but you think you can silence them and tell the membership, I have the support of caucus. You can also use this to your advantage. Will other parties take uh, note and do so? Well, the NDP has already declined. 
The Bloc Québécois culture has been top-down from the beginning, and you knew Lucien Bouchard as I did, so no surprise that the culture of the Bloc is leader-driven. They're not about to do this. They have hosted a leader. Uh, just before uh, Mr. Blanchet, Martin Wallet was hosted by the membership. goes back to the 60 ways to, to dispose of a leader. I don't think the liberals will go for it. I don't think Justin Trudeau should want them to go for it because I suspect that if that power had been given to the liberal caucus when Jean Chrétien was on his third mandate and having a war with Paul Martin, caucus might have voted out a three-majority winner uh, on a vote. And, and I'm not sure what that would have done to party unity. Yeah, there's a lot of ways... <laughs> <laughs> to leave your lover, exactly. Um, I'm I'm wondering where where are we on this the central question? Forget about Aaron O'Toole. Forget about the current situation. But where are we on this the central question of leader driven politics? Um, is that you know I mean leadership's got to mean something, and one of the things it means is you lead the party. But um, leader driven politics inside Canada's parliament. Is that necessarily a bad thing? Well, I don't think so. In fact, I think it's necessary. I think the, you know, I, I hear the arguments of people who say, well, you know, the role of the backbencher is too limited and, and their voices are not heard. And, and, you know, I get that. Uh, but I also think that uh, if you want a recipe for chaos, uh, you just allow a situation to develop where leaders can say whatever they want, and then MPs will say whatever they want, and then we don't really know what a party stands for any longer. Now, I'm taking it to an extreme, but there is a reason, I guess, why leaders get to choose uh, what policies will be in the platform. Leaders get to, have to, green light candidates. I saw um, our friend Andrew Coyne was opining the other day about this whole question of should leaders have the final say in the selection of candidates? And, and you know, I can understand, and I'm not picking on his argument particularly, I, a lot of people have made this point over time that, um, that shouldn't the constituency associations get to choose the candidate? Why does the leader have a veto? Um, well, we all kind of like that position until a bad candidate gets chosen, and then it's all on the leader. Um, and so the leader has to be the person who's accountable for the platform that the party represents, the candidates that run under the banner of the party, and the conduct of the party in the House of Commons on major pieces of legislation. Now, that still leaves room for individuals to stand up and say their piece. They can choose to do it and often do in caucus meetings as a way of uh, bending the curve of the decisions that their caucus are making, influencing uh, their peers in caucus, trying to uh, start a different discussion uh, in their party about the direction that they should go in. And I'd be shocked, frankly, if that isn't happening within the Liberal Party, uh, starting now with more vigor as we probably head into uh, some sort of a leadership race uh, a couple of years down the road. The uh, maybe not Excuse one me? year, Peter. Excuse me. How many years down the road? <laughs> a couple, maybe. I don't think one. I heard you oh, say oh, one. Oh, I thought, oh, okay. So, so well, are anyway. you suggesting then that it would be after an, another election or before? No, before. I think before. Oh. I, I don't see another election for three years, uh, to be honest. And I think that um, the well, way you that are you are now on the record uh, that there will be some kind of a leadership issue facing the Liberal Party before the next election. I'm on the record, again, on the record, again, right. saying that. I'm mostly yeah. interested in the fact that he is on the record. There's no election for three years. That's yeah. duly noted. There's yeah. always, a, yeah. <laughs> soon he'll be on the record in many ways. I was listening to Bruce describe a party where everyone has their say, and it's hard to know what the stance is and who the leader speaks for. And I thought he was describing the Green Party. Um, under its its uh, outgoing leader, exactly. that is exactly what we have seen. There is only so much collegiality uh, that a party can entertain before voters start asking, well, who are these people and what does this party actually stand for? Aaron O'Toole had that problem in a different way and to a degree because he 
had campaigned saying one thing to the party and campaigned to voters cast as some other character uh, and the questions started to be asked from inside and outside. The last party uh, with serious representation in the House of Commons to attempt some kind of collegiality along those lines would have been the Reform Party under Preston Manning. Remember, Mr. Manning would not sit in the front row at first uh, to ask his questions, and his MPs were giving, given a lot of leeway. Meanwhile, the Bloc Québécois was operating, also a new party, under very strict top-down discipline. Guess who ran into trouble with Yahoo stories and who did not? Uh, and I've always assumed that Stephen Harper, who was part of that first group of reform MPs, looked at the Lucien Bouchard's management of his caucus, which went far beyond anything we'd been used to before the bloc came in strength to the hill. Journalists could interview MPs, as you well know, just you know, meeting them in a hallway. When Lucien Bouchard arrived, he made it a rule that you needed to get permission from the leader's office to talk to any journalist. Uh, and when people say, you know, Stephen Harper was a dictator, he was very top down. I think he got that from Lucien Bouchard and watching how he handled a, a rookie party to make sure that the crazies did not surface. Thomas Mulcair also kept his large Quebec caucus mostly in rain in the same way, paid a price for that, uh, you'd say so. Uh, leader driven, name me. Some black MPs beyond Yves Francois Blanchet. The party's been relatively successful. Right. Uh, can you remember a Coalition Avenir Quebec convention? That would be Premier Legault's political vehicle. I have not noticed that he's sharing that driver's seat with this party. So, one, voters reward discipline from parties. And Two, they are not terribly preoccupied with the leader-centric uh, uh, culture. Uh, can, I, can I just pick up a thread on that too, uh, Peter? Sure. Uh, I really believe that, that caucus management is an important skill. Uh, and this is where I think Chantal was going, right? Or that's the point she made, really, which is that just because we might say that you need to have a leader who gets to make these decisions doesn't mean that the leader is well advised to ignore uh, the people in his caucus. And I do think one of the things that's, tr that's a trouble sign for Aaron O'Toole right now is that a number of his caucus members felt like the platform came um, from somewhere that they didn't understand, uh, didn't feel consulted on. And when you have uh, a caucus of people who've been in office for a while and who have relationships with their constituency associations and they're gearing up for an election, if you drop on them a platform that they don't intuitively love uh, and then they have to go out and run on it, it's going to cause some friction. Um, and if you also don't give profile to your local candidates when you're campaigning with them, to your front benchers, who you need uh, to be seen as people who can be individuals of stature in a government if you win the election, then you're courting trouble. It isn't as though um, they can take you out immediately for that. But the saying that I remember learning first in politics was what goes around comes around. And if you treat people a certain way in a situation where you have all of the power and none of the risk, don't be surprised if people return the favor at some point. So that's a just a it's not just about Aaron O'Toole. It's a general kind of rule of the road for leaders not to overuse uh, their authority and to inculcate a sense of dialogue and friendship and camaraderie and teamwork. And I, I for my money, Brian Mulrooney was the best at that, um, that I've ever seen, just in terms of uh, being able to get into trouble politically and uh, have policies that people thought were pretty controversial and be polling at 12 or 14% and still his caucus every day would say, We're, we'll go into battle with you no matter what, because you are our boss and we trust you and you care about us. And that's a really interesting dynamic. And he spent a lot of time massaging that caucus and ensuring that Everybody in that caucus, um, you know, felt they were wanted and needed by him. 
Right. Which was no easy trick, right? No. The Conservative Party has long had that kind of uh, rambunctiousness that, that can drive leaders crazy. Yeah. Uh, he did it very well. Yeah. Yes, but he also had these very large uh, regular caucus retreats where they would spend more than a day together. Uh, I remember scenes, you must too, of Brian Mulroney standing by the piano and singing for his caucus. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure Aaron O'Toole should take singing lessons, but for sure, Brian Mulroney and Jean Charest, who learned that trick from Brian Mulroney, because that is where he, he did his political classes, also were served well by his caucus management at a time when things were really going downhill for him. Uh, in uh, in Quebec, I think Charest, up to a point, uh, was uh, was almost better than his master at that because he mm. inherited a party that did not know him, that was not his party. Right. That Quebec Liberal Party was was not his family. In he had that way, training season with he had that training season with Elsie Wayne in Ottawa. Remember that? <laughs> yes, probably one entire Quebec Liberal caucus it was easier to manage than one Elsie Wayne. I totally <laughs> agree with that. Um, let me just make one last comment on on this topic before we uh, we move on. And, and you know, Chantal mentioned, I think Bruce mentioned as well that you know it, it's not uh, surprising when you see a party leader say one thing. Uh, in a campaign and do another when they're in office. Uh, same with one thing when they're running for the leadership, another thing when they actually attain the leadership. I can remember sitting with Justin Trudeau across the river from Parliament Hill in the 2015 campaign, right at the beginning. We were doing leader interviews with the with all the major leaders. And it was doing Justin Trudeau was the leader of the third party at that point. And... Um, I talked to him about this whole issue of, uh, you know, leader-driven uh, politics and had it, had it gone too far and should there be more, um, you know, power and respect for those who uh, weren't in the leader's office. And, of course, he did the whole absolutely, absolutely, we've got to do that. And I said, well, when did this start to really happen? When, when, when did the PMO take over control of everything? He said, well, it was my father. And he sort of called out Pierre Trudeau saying that that's when it really started in terms of a prime minister's office running the show and not allowing any kind of independent thought from uh, from MPs uh, within the party and that he wouldn't let that happen. Well, I don't know. I, I'm not sure anything's changed on the on, on uh, for a, any of the parties, that they all have seen that, in fact, for all the... <laughs> all the things they used to say about Trudeau, many of the leaders since, if not all the leaders, prime ministers, have uh, kind of run things exactly the same way. Uh, I found uh, to, just on this point yeah. that if you go back, Brian Mulroney gave his ministers a lot more leeway uh, than Subsi and, and Jean Chrétien a bit less, but the leeway of ministers, because it's not just caucus seems to have diminished with every prime minister, uh, less uh, independent thinking out loud and more uh, party lines. And that's been a trend that uh, has not been reversed under Justin Trudeau. On the contrary, sometimes you think that he has become himself a um, captive of the spin machine of the PMO. Yeah. You know, Peter, one of the things that is the most useful, if not always easy to spot tools that leaders use to manage this dynamic is the fact that almost everybody who runs for office and is elected has a degree of ambition that's higher than the average person, not to put too fine a point on it. And they want um, recognition and uh, they have aspirations for, you know, more authority, more uh, influence, uh, maybe a cabinet role. And so uh, those are often seen as kind of perks that leaders can bestow on people who are loyal and, and take away from people or deny to people who aren't. And I think that it does work that way. I don't know if I see them so much as perks, but one of the things, and I think we're going to come to a subject uh, that touches on this um, this morning, is that if the role of the average MP kind of looks better from a distance than it does close up once you get elected for the first time. The idea of being able to move up the ladder and have more influence becomes all the more important. And anytime your caucus 
gets to be too large. Every leader who's had a large caucus has experienced that this gets harder because more people in your caucus wake up every day knowing that they're never going to be in cabinet, that they've had one turn as a parliamentary secretary and probably won't get a second. And so there's really, uh, other than the odd committee role, there's not that many other opportunities for them to to have a, an impact if they are looking for visibility and a kind of a broader sense of who they are and what they've done. So that's an interesting a dynamic. And I think Aaron O'Toole has a challenge on his hands in that respect as well. And as he thinks about his shadow cabinet, the choices that he makes relative to this new caucus power uh, are really going to be important choices to watch because he's probably in that mode where he has to build a, a kind of a, a guard uh, that will defend him, but at the same time, not ignore those people who might be looking to take his job. You know, it, it's taken almost three weeks, but it, it's good to hear Bruce uh, making the argument that the smaller party caucuses or caucus are better than larger ones, and therefore, obviously, the natural extension of that reason. the natural yeah. extension of that argument would be minority governments have the smallest caucuses, caucus. Um, so therefore, obviously, the minority government was the right way to go. All right. Um. <laughs> it is easier to run your caucus up to a point in a, a government caucus if you have a minority government. Because yeah. it, yep. Bill Davis did that for a long time in Ontario in the late 70s. Because you can tell the more extreme elements of your caucus, and I suspect Stephen Harper has also done that, uh, that what is staring them in the face if they insist on pushing in that direction is an election where they may or may not get reelected on the government side of the House. Okay, we're going to move on. But uh, before we move on, we take this quick break. Back with Chantelle Bear in Montreal, Bruce Anderson in Ottawa. You're listening to Good Talk on the Bridge right here on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or wherever you get your podcast. Now, Bruce mentioned we're going to move on to a, a, a related topic in a way. Uh, I mentioned this on yesterday's uh, episode of The Bridge. And it did provoke a number of uh, emails coming in from uh, viewers who were really injured, listeners really interested in finding out what you two thought of this in terms of why and what the implications are. Here's the story. It's a Quebec story. Hundreds of Quebec mayors elected unopposed as nomination period ends. In fact, hundreds is right. 572 mayoral candidates in Quebec had been declared elected because they were unopposed that represents over half of those posts in quebec and not only that in 11 cases nobody ran for mayor nobody at all they couldn't interest anybody now most of these are smaller communities um but nevertheless that's a lot and i'm wondering I mean, there can be any number of reasons, as we suggested yesterday, as to why people go unopposed. Um, but also, I guess the question is, is, has it become less and less attractive to run for um, public service, for run for, in, you know, many mayors aren't, aren't, aren't political in the sense they don't declare for any particular party. But, um, but has it become less interesting, less attractive for people to run for public office. And if that's the case, man, we got a problem. Um, Bruce, do you want to start again? Houston, we do have a problem. It's a real problem. It's become so much less um, appealing to run in the period of time since the first election that I worked in, which was 1978, 1979, I guess. Um, And I think there are a number of reasons for it. Um, Just to think back to what campaigns were like on a local level then, um, there were lots of volunteers. Um, The normal course of campaigns included multiple all-candidates meetings 
that were attended by significant proportions of the riding. I don't want to overstate that, but right now, in a lot of writings, there are no all candidates meetings, or at least there are some, but not all candidates attend. Um, and and it kind of speaks to a, a kind of a weakening of attachment with the political process that results in a sense of I'm running, but does anybody really even know that I'm running? Does anybody ever hear what it is that I have to say about myself if I'm a candidate and what I believe in and who I am as an individual? Or is it just a party vote? I think part of the problem that we've got into is um, does have to do with our electoral system. And I'm not a, I'm not necessarily in favor of reform of it, but I do recognize that recruiting people to run for parties that don't look like they can win in a riding or nationally is harder to do. And and I gathered in the run up to this election that the NDP was really having trouble fielding a full slate of candidates. And I don't remember uh, sensing that they had as big a problem at any election before. I think the Conservatives and the Liberals also didn't have all of their candidates picked as early as I might have expected them to, um, despite the fact that it was a minority government. Now, maybe that's partly pandemic related, but I think the broader issue that we're running into is that is something we've seen for a while. I just think that it's become exacerbated in the days of social media, which is that you move from becoming somebody who's, you know, got a career, maybe made a contribution in the community, has sort of developed a network of people who like you and support you and think good things of you. And then you decide to run and all of a sudden you're somebody who's an object of a little bit of suspicion and skepticism. And you're uh, seen as somebody who's kind of looking to, uh, make more money than you deserve and do uh, things that have to do with your ego rather than the public interest. And that's um, that's kind of hard to spot for some people going in. But some people, I think, just look at politics from a distance and say, if I ever thought about doing that, it doesn't feel like a good choice for my life right now. And that's even before you get to the fact that it's quite disruptive for families uh, for some people, it's the best job and the best paying job they will ever have. And for other people, it's a very serious uh, or significant economic sacrifice. Uh, I don't think we talk about those issues enough. I think we we owe it to ourselves as a society to value um, candidates more. And if we don't start to reverse that process at some point, we're going to see more problems of the kind that you identified in that uh, in the Quebec data that you cited. Sean Dell. Just a point on uh, having the NDP having trouble running a full slate. How do you think Jack Layton ended up getting people elected who didn't know they would have to show up on Parliament Hill or were playing yeah. poker in Vegas during the campaign? Yeah. Uh, so it, it, this is not a new NDP problem. Uh, it's it's a recurring problem. Maybe uh, Thomas Mulcair had less of that problem because he ran, ran the party when it was in official opposition. And because the orange wave would make you believe in miracle, more people uh, would say, well, I'm going to take a chance on this. Look at all those Quebec MPs who got themselves elected and never expected to have to put their university degree on hold to go sit and become uh, an MP in the House of Commons at the ripe age of 19 years old. Um, I remember my friend Jean Lapierre, when he was the Quebec lieutenant to Paul Martin, telling me one day that... You know, as the Quebec lieutenant, he would get to introduce uh, star recruits uh, to, to, in, in an election. I'm not sure if it was the 04 or 06, well, probably 06. He had gone to Sherbrooke and they'd recruited a top uh, candidate who was a, a de the dean or director at the University of Sherbrooke, someone who'd really made a name for himself. And he had told me, you know, I walked into the room with a respected academic and I walked out of the room, and this is against the background of the sponsorship scandal, with someone who was suddenly considered a thug and a thief because he was running in politics for the Liberal Party uh, in that election. Didn't win the writing, by the way. That being said, on the municipal front, 
There is also what is interesting and what is less rewarding. Quebec, like other provinces, has gone through a period of amalgamation where it has you know, made some of its larger cities larger. And in all of those places, Quebec, Montreal, Gatineau, Longueuil, Laval, uh, there are really competitive battles uh, for uh, the job of mayor and for the municipal council uh, ongoing at this point, where the acclamations have tended to ha- happen has been in smaller places where you're almost a volunteer. You, you get literally no pay. And not only that, if you're going to be running against someone who is already in place and you live in a small community, there may be a social price to pay for that because it's a very divisive exercise to challenge an incumbent. But what I found most troubling was that a number of incumbents municipally in this round announced that they were not running again because the environment created by the social media was so toxic that they had had enough uh, and they did not want to reoffer. And that is new as opposed to what has been going on in the past. Now, if you look at federal politics, the number of defeated incumbents who reoffer is really high. It's like junkies who really want to go back to, to that drug. Will that decrease over time? Will more and more people defeated or retired decide that they don't, they're happy to be out of the, that environment, that it's too toxic? Big question mark. But that trend, I find more disquieting <clears throat> of people saying, I can't put up with this, um, often women, uh, than the notion that uh, people were acclaimed in a variety of smaller venues. Can I add one thing on that? Because Chantel raised this, and I think the three of us should talk about it for a minute because it's it's material in journalism as well as in politics. And uh, it's very topical right now, but there's no reason why it should just be topical right now. We should, we've seen it developing for some time, and that is the the treatment of women in particular on social media platforms. Um, and... Uh, you know, we've been more and more aware lately that uh, female journalists are experiencing an awful lot of uh, abuse. And uh, happily, that is being kind of surfaced more as an issue. And I think news organizations are trying to figure out what to do about it. But uh, there's going to take it's going to take a bigger collective will more persistently applied. And I don't really know what those solutions are to solve some of this, because uh it's terrible right now. And, um, you know, when Chantal said, you know, maybe disproportionately women thinking about not re uh, submitting for life, it wasn't because um, they're kind of of weaker uh, stamina for this sort of thing. It's terrible what uh, women go through and men don't go through the same thing. Um, There's no question that there are rotten things said uh, about men in politics, but nowhere near in my view, uh, of the nature um, uh, that women are exposed to. So I hope that that becomes uh, a bigger part of the discussion of, uh, of how we kind of heal our politics so that people who, who get in there don't feel as though these only pla- the only platforms really that they have whereby they can communicate their point of view or the things that they believe in or the work that they're doing to constituents become completely polluted uh, by, in some cases, bots, but in some cases, just people who um, who think that it's uh, it's a kind of a fun hobby almost to uh, to hurl horrible, horrible insults at at people in public life. And part of the problem here is, is it's a general issue uh, in some elements of social media. You know, not just for female politicians, um, but for females in general. Yeah, and. Uh, I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure what the answer is. I mean, we watch these hearings going on in the states this week on on Facebook, and it's as it's as if these congressmen and congresswomen, you know, have been on the moon for the last ten years. It's not like they suddenly discovered that awful things have been happening on social media and Facebook in particular in the you know in these last few years. Um, but it's up front and it's there now. And it, the question is, what are they going to do about it? And the same questions apply here. I mean, you talked about abuse for, for journalists. I mean, I, I, I do not recall the last election campaign in Canada 
federal campaign anyway, where, where news organizations have to consider protection for their journalists at some rallies, the same way they, they have protection for their journalists on overseas conflicts. I mean, that, that's crazy that we, we've wound up kind of heading in that direction. Um, back to the what raised this topic in terms of candidates, male and female, I mean, I can recall, and you know, and it's not that long ago. I think it's only the last couple of campaigns that I haven't seen it. But the, the networks used to commission, and so did the the papers commission, you know, pieces on the star candidates running for whichever party. And there, there'd always be, you know, four to six star candidates, well-known people, you know business leaders who, you know, left the vice presidency of a bank or the head of an insurance company or... You mean uh, Mark Carney. <laughs> or Mark Carney, who, who punted, right? I mean, maybe he, maybe he's just standing on the sidelines waiting for the right moment to be whistled into the, into the game. I don't know. But I do mean that kind of person. And it's not just business leaders. It's athletes. It's people from the arts uh, and entertainment area. Um, and parties would showcase their star candidates, and there was enough. Of, there was enough of them to do individual pieces. Here are the Liberal star candidates for this campaign, or the Conservatives, or the NDP. Um, but I haven't seen one of those pieces in the last two election campaigns. It just you don't see that. I certainly, don't see enough of those to to create a whole item on it, uh, which also gives you a sense of where we are in the times and, and, and how unattractive running for office uh, may be. But the long-term implications of that are you know, not good on any level. In the last 10 years, um, I sort of half expected that a lot of people who were my peers in terms of age and worked in fields that I had come in contact with, maybe clients, um, just my network of, of people that I've come to know over my professional life, I expected to see a number of them do the thing that people have always done in my lifetime, which is start to wonder if maybe the time was right for them to, um, to run for public office. And I've had conversations with many of them over the years, over the last decade, and almost without exception, they've expressed something that sounds like, I always thought I would be interested in it and maybe now would be the right time, but it doesn't feel like a, uh, a healthy or positive thing to do in my life or for my family. And I'm not sure that um, I could take the, uh, the point that Chantal was making of moving from being somebody who's sort of built a, a life uh, where your community respects you and turn into somebody who is seen as an object of, of derision or skepticism or, or abuse. Um, and uh, um, we all know the highest profile examples of people who, who suffered this. Um, and, and we should recognize that when situations like developed with, uh, with Catherine McKenna, the Minister of Environment and Climate Change and then Infrastructure, that doesn't just affect one person, that affects a whole, uh, array of other people in the community who might be thinking about running. And it's to her credit that she says it shouldn't, that people should still run. But uh, I think a lot of people will look at that, uh, that kind of example and say, what are we going to do about this? But I don't want to be the one who figures out what we're going to do about it and pays with my reputation and my mental health and my sense of uh, a loss of privacy or whatever. So uh, you know, I, I think leaders have to take a position. I think the media have to play a, a firm role in this. I think the social media solutions that we find elusive right now, we need to find. Do you want a last word on this, Chantal? Well, name candidates, uh, I'll use that instead of star candidates, uh, do have a pattern of surfacing mostly when there is a change election or changes in the air. Remember, Stephen Harper recruited uh, Tony Clement, John Barrett, the uh, uh, and and Flaherty, uh, who had been, you know, who had a track record in Ontario, polarizing possibly, but still made for a, a heavier team than 
the, the, that side of the spectrum and put forward uh, over a number of years and got to power. And Justin Trudeau came up with Christian Freeland and Bill Morneau and Jody Wilson-Raybould. And it was also at the time of a change election. I don't think this election was really a change election or that a lot of work was put into nurturing uh, name candidates on the liberal side because they already have a full complement in cabinet and uh, uh, y- you can only recruit so many before you start having internal tensions around the table as to <laughs> whose seat is this guy or this woman going to take from me. And in the case of the conservatives, you know, Aaron O'Toole this week made a point that we forget because it's been that kind of a time, but this was the first time that Aaron O'Toole, since he became leader, physically met with this caucus. That is what the pandemic has done to federal politics. So forget about going around convincing people to be uh, your finance minister if you win. You don't even get to meet face-to-face with your caucus. And it makes a difference to meet face-to-face versus meeting uh, virtually in a place where you can mute and then go vent somewhere else instead of seeing that there are others who think like you and having a discussion. There's also an interesting pattern that I've seen here about a decade ago, a bit more than that. Journalists would run, well-known journalists would run for office on both sides of the fence. I've had colleagues run for the Parti Québécois, the Liberal Party. Now, politicians are leaving politics to become television pundits. (laughs) And there's a whole industry of it out there. Uh, not exclusively, but in particular on the French side of of the media divide. I find that movement fascinating because 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. But now there are probably more ex-politicians opining on politics on TV and radio in Quebec than journalists ever considering running for office. Follow the money. There was an old line, uh, I think you remember this. of a politician who went to a, a lobbyist's house years and years and years ago and the house is fairly elegant and the politician said I it looks like it's better to know me than to be me and I think the, uh, the analog uh, that Chantal is relating to is it's better to criticize a politician than to be a politician uh, and maybe the politicians who bid in office know that more acutely than, than, than the journalists might suspect. That's a great, a great story. I remember that story and I remember the two individuals in it, but, uh, but we'll, we'll keep their names anonymous for, <laughs> for this moment. Um, you're being a bit of a tease here. Now you're going to get mail for that. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Well, one of them's deceased at the moment. So well, not just at the moment they're deceased. Um, Nevertheless, uh, moving on, I'm going to take my final break and then come back with a short Thanksgiving-type question for the two of you. And that's right after this. All right, back for final thoughts with uh, Chantal Hebert in Montreal, Bruce Anderson in Ottawa. Uh, This is Thanksgiving weekend, and while we are uh, prone to spend a lot of time talking about the things that we wish were different, and we've talked about some of them already here today, um, we can still find uh, room in our space here for a little uh, Thanksgiving of our own. I mean, what, uh, you know, as we head into this weekend, what what are we... uh, and what are you in particular grateful for? What are, what will you be uh, thanking for this weekend? Chantel, you got uh, some thoughts on that? That it uh, will not be the same Thanksgiving as last year, uh, that we will not spend it in boxes uh, and uh, look at each other on a screen eating whatever, uh, turkey or whatever. Uh, and... I think a lot of Canadians should be thankful that we did get through this. It's not over, but we're here, still here. That's progress. Yeah, it is progress, and uh, you know, and, and grateful for those who uh, who have stood uh, for us in terms of uh, trying to protect us through this really difficult time, um, and you know, remembering the. Uh, 
almost 30,000 Canadians who haven't made it through all this. Uh, but as you say, Chantel, it's not, it's not over yet. Uh, Bruce? Similar, but I think on a larger level for me, the reflection of how our democracy functions with all of its weaknesses and missteps and human foibles and everything else, we, we navigated this pandemic uh, more successfully than might have been the case. And, and certainly when I look at the way that the U.S. allowed the pandemic to become a more polarizing and destructive force, and we didn't do that. Um, we have had divisions about this, and we do uh, still, but small divisions uh, around vaccination. And we've got one or two jurisdictions, which are kind of outliers in terms of the outcomes, because the policy choices were different. But but the ship of Canadian opinion and Canadian politics is moving in a positive direction everywhere. Um, and so there's a lot for us to to be thankful for if we look around the world and, and see the problems in the UK as a result of Brexit and the problems in the US because of polarization and everything else. And, and to recognize that we avoid uh, the worst of those kinds of things uh, here. And it's because we have a, a vibrant democracy where people can express their point of view and, and challenge ideas. And, and it's, it's messy sometimes, but it's, it's productive too. You know, I, I, I always think back to my dad when we moved to, uh, to Canada, showing the, the big map of Canada and saying, this, this, is, like, this country is huge. Just look at how, how far it extends and from one ocean to another and up to the third ocean being the Arctic. Um, and as, as big as it is and as, as much as you'd like to say, man, something that big can't be governable, in fact, it it actually is governable. <laughs> we may we may have our our issues with the, the way it's government uh, governed, and I don't mean in partisan way, but just simply you know the different structures of government. Um, but it does kind of work, and the people uh, in it try to find ways, even when we know there are issues that we uh, have to confront, and we've talked about them often. Um, when crises hit, it does actually kind of perform like a nation. I mean. A year ago, when certain parts of the country were in uh, real difficulty because of, uh, of the pandemic, Albertans stepped up and helped by sending stuff to other parts of the country. Now Alberta is going through its own hell, and it's, it's a bad one. And, and other parts of the country are moving to try and help as best they can. And that's always nice to see and nice to witness and something to be grateful and, uh, and thankful for. Um, so wherever you are on this uh, Thanksgiving weekend, we hope you take time and pause to uh, give thanks uh, to whomever and whatever you uh, wish to give thanks to. Bruce and Chantel, thank you, as always, for good talk. I'll let you get back to your book, Bruce. I know that you're you're plowing through I it. want a second reading of it now. I just, I, I couldn't resist. <laughs> He's always going to get the first answer now. <laughs> That's right. Okay. You guys take care. And uh, we'll talk again uh, in a week's time somehow. I know Bruce is going to be overseas. I'll be overseas in a couple of weeks. But we're still going to figure all this out because people love good talk. And we got to keep giving it. Chantel. Bruce, thank you, and to our listeners for good talk. Thanks for listening. Talk to you thank again. Thank you, guys. Take care. Yep. Bye. Monday's off. It's a holiday. Back on Tuesday. Oh.